Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Follow as I read that, please. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat until they wash, unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have now handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the study of your word. We, we thank you for this important teaching. One of the most important teachings that the New Testament contains. One of the most important warnings to us as believers in Jesus Christ. To make sure that we are on the same page with you when it comes to holiness. That we are on the same page with you when it comes to sin. We thank you. Thank you that Jesus confronted both his disciples and us in this teaching. We ask you to guide us in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday nights, when we check the kids in for Awana, and those of you who have children in Awana know what I'm talking about, we check the kids in and we ask questions like this Did you bring your Bible? Are you wearing your uniform? Have you been to church on Sunday? Uh, did you bring a guest? And we ask those questions, and it's like, check, 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 check. 
But you know, if we wanted to know the state of the souls of our children, we would ask them a question more like, have you obeyed your parents this week? Have you been respectful to your teacher and to your friends? But see, this points out something that I think is very dangerous for us as believers in that we believe in too closely check-the-box Christianity, check-the-box religion. Now, the purpose of our checking the kids in is not to find out the state of their soul. You know, it's to give them points. I understand that. But, you know, let's say this morning you were to ask me, Joe, did you pray this morning? Check, I did. Joe, did you read your Bible this morning? Check, I did. And so on and so forth. And you might ask those kind of questions. Well, the the danger in that is that it doesn't say have to say much about the state of our souls. Is, is it important to read the Word of God? We hammer that all the time here at DRBC, that we should be reading the Word of God. Is it important that we pray? Of course it is. But we don't do it just to check the box. We don't do it just to check the box and say, okay, I've done that. You see, that's the, what's going on in chapter 7 of the book of Mark, is these Pharisees, these scribes, they're checking the box. It's not that they love God. It's not that they're growing in their love for God. It's not that it expresses what is in their heart for God. They're just going through rote things. And we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful that we are, that our spirituality, for instance, is authentic. We have to be careful that our humility is genuine. We have to be careful that we are pursuing righteousness. We have to be careful that we are being obedient in both small things and big things. We have to be careful that we're not holding a grudge. We have to be careful that we're not being unforgiving. We have to be careful that we're not allowing in our lives those things that God doesn't approve of. Jesus is warning his disciples in this passage against a check-the-box mentality. It's so easy for us to fall into a check-the-box mentality. The religious leaders, they wanted to talk about ritual. One writer said they wanted to talk about ritual hand-washing. Jesus is dedicated to a heart relationship with the Lord. They were concerned with externals. Jesus was concerned with cleansing the inner man. And so you and I need to be concerned with the internals, not just the externals, not just how we look to people on the outside, not just how uh, we are one thing at one time and another thing at another time. We have to be careful about that if we are to be truly spiritual. I, I like the way Vance Habner put it. He said, there is so much in our religious life today that is cheap and superficial There is plenty of glorified big business, wheels within wheels, men, methods, money, drives, and movements, and projects are abundant. But as in other centuries, there are souls here and there who are sick of all that and whose consuming thirst is to know God. Most people are too busy raising quotas and thinking up slogans to walk with God. It takes time to be holy, but who takes the time? 
See, that's the desire of your life, I hope, and of my life, is that we would thirst after God, that we would have a thirst for God, that we would have a thirst uh, for worshiping Him, a thirst for Him in our lives, not just go through the motions, not just check the boxes. Well, that's where Jesus is going in our passage this morning as we, as we look at these uh, areas. Uh, there's one illustration that I really love, and I'm going to take a minute to share it with you, uh, that kind of expresses how this check-the-box mentality can interfere with the uh, growth of a person. In this case, the person is Eugene Peterson. Uh, as many of you know, he is one of my favorite writers, and he always challenges me. He always challenges my life. And so I, uh, sometimes he challenges me because I disagree with him. Sometimes he challenges me because I agree with him. Uh, but he, he uh, talks about a time when he was first in the pastorate, and he was, uh, for his denomination, he was starting a new church. And so they put him in a program where he had to report to the, the, the leadership once a month. And he had to write in that report. And he uh, explains, he said, one of the duties I had as the organizing pastor of a new church was to prepare a monthly report on my work and send it to a denominational executive in New York City. It was not a difficult task, but it did take a day's work. The first page was statistical. Do you hear check the box? The first page was statistical. How many calls did I make? How many people attended worship? A financial report of offerings, progress on building plans, plans, committee activities. This was followed by several pages of reflection on my pastoral ministry, what I understood of God's presence in my work, theological ruminations on the church, my understanding of mission, area of areas of inadequacy that were showing up in my ministry, strengths and skills that seemed to be emerging. After a few months of doing this, I got the impression that my superiors were not reading the second part. In other words, they were reading the check-the-box first part, but they weren't reading the second part. He said, I got that impression. I thought I would test out my impression and have a little fun on the side. So, the next month, he said, after dutifully compiling the statistical data, I turned to page two and described as best I could and imagined low, long, slow slide into depression. I wrote that I had difficulty sleeping. I couldn't pray. I was getting work done at a maintenance level, but it was a robotic kind of thing with no spirit, no zest, having feelings and thoughts like this that I was seriously questioning whether I should be a pastor at all. Could they recommend a counselor for me? Now, he's making all this up. Sends in his report. Got no response. So he said, getting no response, I upped the ante. The next month, I developed a drinking problem, <laughs> which became evident one Sunday in the pulpit. Everybody was very nice about it, but one of the elders had to complete the sermon. I felt that I was at the point where I needed treatment. How should I go about getting it? Still no response. I got bolder. The next month I cooked up an affair. And I won't describe the affair as he did. Uh, he said, 
Again, no response from them to this. He said, this was turning into a gala event. One day each month in our house, I would go to my study and write these wonderful fictions and then bring them out and read them to my wife. We would laugh and laugh, collaborating by embellishing details. Next, I reported some innovations I was making in liturgy. This was the 60s, an era of liturgical reform and experimentation. Our worship, I wrote to one of my supervisors, was almost as dull as it could get. I had read some scholarly guesses about a mushroom called in Palestine in the first century. I thought it was worth a try. I arranged for the purchase of some mushroom caps. Now, he's making this all up and reporting it to New York City, to the headquarters, And I introduced these mushrooms into our next celebration of the Eucharist. It was the most terrific experience anybody had ever had in worship. Absolutely dazzling, but I didn't want to do anything that was in violation of our church constitution. And finding nothing in our book of order on this, could they please advise me on whether I was permitted to proceed along those lines? Still no response. These report-writing days were getting to be a lot of fun. Month after month, I sent the stories to the men and women who were overseeing the health of my spirituality and the integrity of my ministry, and never did I get a response. You see, as long as he was checking the boxes, they weren't concerned about his spiritual life. They weren't concerned about his holiness. They weren't concerned. They didn't even read page two. Well, he goes on to say, at the end of three years, I was released from their supervision. As a pastor and congregation, we were more or less on their own. And uh, I went for a debriefing to the denominational office in New York City under which I worked. They asked me to evaluate their supervision through the three years. I told them I appreciated their help. The checks arrived on time each month. I was treated courteously, courteously at all times. But there was one minor area of disappointment. They, have never, they had never read past the first page of statistical reporting that I had sent in each month. Oh, but we did, they said. We read those reports carefully. We take them seriously. How can that be? I said that time I asked for help with my drinking problem, you didn't respond. That time I got involved in a sexual adventure, you didn't intervene. That craziness that I reported when I was using peyote in the Eucharist and you did nothing. Their faces were blank and then confused, followed by a splendid vaudeville slapstick of buck passing and excuse making. It was a wonderful moment. I had them dead to rights. I replay the scene in my imagination a couple of times a year. I know that was a little lengthy, but I shared that with you because we have such a tendency toward checking the box. We have such a tendency in our lives toward checking the box. Instead of concentrating on developing a real heart for God, instead of concentrating on on a passion for God, a love for God, so often we're just checking the box. Prayed, check. Read, check. Witnessed, check. So on and so forth. Better questions for our lives would be, how have you loved your spouse this week? How have you respected your coworkers? this week would be better questions 
Jesus is trying to get the disciples to ask better questions. And to do that, they have to ignore the Pharisees. They have to ignore the scribes. They have to ignore the religious leaders who were the kings of checking the box religion. And that's why I think this passage is so important. Why there's so much here for us to consider in our own lives. We read in chapter 7 and verse 1 that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. Now, first of all, let me remind you, it's been a while since we were introduced to the Pharisees and the scribes, and I just want to remind you a little bit about them. The Pharisees were a group of laymen who sought to be separate from impure things and impure things and impure people, and they attempted to apply Mosaic law to every part of their lives. But listen to what happened to them. By Jesus' time, they had lost the heart of their religion. They had lost the heart of their religion. They were separatists. They were legalists. They call themselves a name that means one who associates himself strictly with the law in opposition to encroachment of Hellenism. They started out, and this is the sad part, they started out with zeal for the word of God and its purity, but they ended up rigid, imbalanced, and hypocritical. They were deeply devoted to the Mosaic law. They strictly regulated their lives by binding interpretations of oral law. They were meticulous about maintaining ceremonial purity, and they were the most influential religious party in Palestine. If there were a seminar in checking the box religion, they would lead it. They would lead it. Virtually, the Pharisees made God in their own image. They were intolerant and petty, and they made God intolerant and petty. They were more interested in rules and regulations and ritual than they were in life. Sadly, those who were so close to the law of God so missed its intent. They were so close to the law of God, but they so missed its intent. The scribes were experts in the law, experts in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed that the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament, must be the supreme rule of faith and life. They believed that they contained everything necessary to guide and direct life. So therefore, they intensely studied the Torah. They said it contained great broad principles, but here's where they went wrong. It had great and broad principles, but they said they must be brought out and expressed in rules and regulations. So what did they do? They made thousands of rules and regulations in the oral law. And in the oral law, it covered everything you could possibly do in life. And if they didn't, they made a new rule for it. Checking the box. They said we have to intensely study. We must take those broad principles and we must bring them out in rules and regulations. Their task was to 
extract rules and regulations for every possible situation in life. They transmitted and taught the law and its developments. Thus began the oral law. Not written down, but considered even more binding than the written law. Now, hang with me here, because Jesus is going to deal with this in chapter 7. The written law was the law of Moses, which they received from God. The written law was the law of Moses, which they received from God. The oral law was their law, which they extracted from the written law, and pretty soon they said the oral law trumps the written law. What are they saying? They're saying that their ideas, human ideas, man-made ideas, trumped what? The Word of God. That's the problem with check-the-box religion. Because pretty soon you're following your own ideas. Pretty soon you're following your own rules. Pretty soon you're following the God that your mind has made up instead of the God of the Word of God. That's why it's so, so important for you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, to be sure that we are, are in the Word of God in a, in a real sense, in that we don't go away from the Word of God. By Jesus' time, the oral Torah had become so minute and devoid of spiritual meaning that the law of God was set aside and in some cases even nullified. We read about that in, in chapter 7 just a moment ago. Hopefully we'll get to that. The law of Corbin, in which they nullified and set aside the word of God, the law of God, to follow their own oral law. What is my point? I hope I'm making it. I don't know. <laughs> My point is it's so easy to follow a God of our own making. It's so easy to believe that we are walking in holiness and we are walking in righteousness when all we're doing is checking the box. If Chris and Steve and I and the elders of this church have done our job, you should be developing a heart for God. You should be developing a passion for God, as we should be. These people were passionate about their rules, but they weren't passionate about God. Oh, that we might be unlike them. Well, Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law came to Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, uh, and remember, we've already seen in the book that one of the reasons they gathered around him was because it was a good show in their eyes. Jesus did healings. Jesus cast out demons. But more importantly, they were looking for ways to trip Jesus up because they were looking for, for ways to do what? Putting to death. Putting to death. Well, they saw some of his disciples, and of course they were always looking for, for that thing that would give them the power to put him to death. They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is unwashed. Now, remember, the issue here is not bad manners. 
They weren't saying, oh, shame on your disciples. They don't wash their hands before supper. It's kind of like, you know, we tell our kids, did you wash your hands? Yes, I washed my hands. I didn't hear the water running. It's amazing how you washed your hands and I didn't even hear the water running. My hearing's still good. It wasn't a hygiene problem. It wasn't bad manners. It was violating ceremonial purity. It was ceremonial defilement. It was part of their oral law that they were violating. It was part of their oral law that they were violating. You see, they had many hand washings. They had many hand washings. Jumping ahead here a little bit, trying to... In the hand washing, they would have a very strict ritual and they would do it not just at the beginning of a meal, but they would do it many times throughout the meal, before every meal and between the courses of every meal. As I was studying this, I was trying to imagine myself going through these rituals. And, you know, you got to wait for the next course till you go through the hand-washing ritual. Oh, my goodness. I'll never get the food. Before every meal and between courses, they would do this ritual hand-washing. Clean water, clean in quotes, was kept in large stone jars for this very purpose. They would point their fingertips, the, the first hand-washing, the first washing, they would point their first part of it, they would point their fingertips up, then water would be poured on from their fingertips and allowed to run down to their wrist, then it would be rubbed into first into one palm, then into the other pile, uh, palm, excuse me. That water was then unclean, so they had to get more clean water. And this time, the fingertips would be pointing downward, and they'd pour from the wrist to the fingers. Now, I want you to think about, you're doing that, and you say, okay, it's good, good enough, I got, I'll do it at the beginning of the meal, and we'll be fine. The idea was they were washing the filth of Gentiles off their bodies off their hands before they ate. That was the idea. It was their own interpretation. But then you had to go through that between every course of the meal. You get the clean water. You hold your fingertips up. They pour the water to your wrist. You, turn, you rub your palms. You turn your hands over. They pour the water from your wrist down to your fingers the other way around. Why did they do that? So that you could go through and do the ceremonies. So you could be ceremonially clean. Now, as Jesus is going to point out in this passage, did that really make them clean? No. As he points out, being clean is an issue of the heart, not of the hands. But we will get to that. So between every meal, or in, during every meal, at the beginning and throughout the meal, they would go through this hand washing. 
Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, uh, if you have a paper Bible, uh, I'd like you to underline that. If you have an electronic Bible, I'd like you to highlight that uh, because you're going to see over and over and over again in this passage, we read of the word tradition and we, we read of the tradition of the oral law in this passage. Holding to the tradition of the elders, verse 3, as you read on. And then they observe many other traditions. And then you read on to verse 5. Don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Then you read further on in verse 9. The commands, you're setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then again, you read in verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Do you get the picture that these people weren't interested in God's word? They weren't interested in what God had to say. They weren't interested in God's law. They were just merely interested in their tradition. Now there's, there's a, a story that is told, and um, as I remember it, it was told to me by a friend of mine when we ministered in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, as something that happened in his family, I have since come to learn that it's like an urban legend story you probably have heard. So if you, if you heard it, don't listen. Uh, you don't have to listen. Uh, Daniel, a friend of mine from the church, and he and his wife uh, were preparing, she was preparing uh, Easter dinner and preparing the Easter ham. And she said, before I go any further, I have to do something. And she gets out a hacksaw and saws off the bone. And he said, why did you do that? She said, because Grandma always did it. Well, why did Grandma do it? I don't know. So she's with her, her mother later that day, her mother-in-law that later that day, and uh, she says to her, why did Grandma cut the bone? off the ham, mother says, I don't know. We've always done it that way. So grandma has passed on to glory, so they go to grandpa and say, grandpa, why did grandma cut the bone off of the ham? Did it bring out more flavor? What was, what was the reason for it? And grandpa said, as I think about it, the reason was it wouldn't fit in the pan. But they went on and did that. I, I found out later it's a, like an urban legend, so I, I don't know whether it was really part of my friend's family or not, but, uh, or if he just made it that. But uh, that's what tradition can do. We do the same, we do these things over and over and over again, and we forget the reason. They don't have any purpose any longer. That's what was happening with these scribes. That's what was happening with these Pharisees. They were living by and doing tradition while all the while setting aside the word of God, while all the while negating the word of God. The traditions of the elders, remember when you read traditions, think oral law and its interpretation because 
That's what we're talking about, oral law and its interpretation. What is so sad is that the nation that was so favored with God's law, so favored with the opportunity to, have, to serve God, so favored with the priesthood and the covenants and the promises that they had sunk to this level. That they had sunk to this level. Verse 5, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Amazing question to answer the Son of God, isn't it? Why don't your disciples follow man-made laws? Uh, I would love to hear Jesus saying here, and we don't know fully what he said, but uh, we have a part of it, and it's stringent enough. <laughs> it's serious enough. But the answer immediately comes to mind, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? The answer immediately comes to mind because they're busy following the word of God. They're busy following the word of God. But Jesus' actual example is recorded for us, so don't take my word for it. Look at verse 6. He replied, this is Jesus, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, and then he quotes from Isaiah. He says this, Isaiah and the Septuagint version, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and that you are holding on to the traditions of men. That's the danger of following tradition without understanding. Is there a real basis for it? Is there a basis for following that tradition? If it isn't based in the word of God, if it isn't the word of God, then don't follow it. The problem was they had a wrong idea of sin and a wrong idea of holiness. True holiness is a matter of the inward attitude. True holiness is a matter of obedience to God's word, not just external actions, not just external observances. The problem for all of us is in the heart, not the hands. The problem for all of us is in the heart, not the hands. It is a battle that many of us will have all throughout our Christian life, and that battle is to keep from being a check-the-box believer, to develop in our lives a real passion for God, a real love for God. One writer said, For the Pharisees, obeying God's law was not about loving God, Instead, they obeyed in order to profit, to appear holy, and to heighten their reputations. Obeying God's law was a means to their own ends. They were using God's law for themselves, not for God. They had become their own gods. 
Hypocrisy is knocking at our doors when we are more concerned with our reputations than with our character. If we're doing church while our hearts remain distant from God, and if we're emphasizing where we're obedient but pointing out where others are failing, we can obey God without loving him, but we cannot love God without obeying his commands. To put it in a phrase that I love once again, and we began here, so I'll end here this morning. In a Eugene Peterson quote, there are a thousand ways of being religious without submitting to, the, to Christ's lordship, and people are practiced in most of, most of them. Let's look at our lives, and this week let's ask the question, am I growing in my passion for God? Am I growing in my love for God? Or am I just checking the box? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' challenge to these so-called spiritual leaders, so-called religious leaders who ignored your word, voided your word, replaced your word with their own human ideas. May we not be guilty of that in our lives. And may we grow in our passion for you, grow in our love for you. Oh, Lord, it's, it's good to read your word. It's good to pray on a regular basis, and we're not denigrating that but help us to do it to grow more passionate about you, not just to check the box. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.